Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. first precept we looked at, of course, was ahimsa, the vow of not intentionally causing harm, not killing, not taking or shutting down life. And the second precept we explored was honesty, and honesty flows out of uh, nonviolence. And the third precept we explored was asteya, not stealing not taking what's not given freely. And one of the ways that I would translate that is being satisfied with what I have. Being satisfied with what I have. And then we start to recognize that it's not just being satisfied with what we have, but also being satisfied with who and what we are. Really being able to accept who we are, to allow for the changes in our lives, the changes in our bodies, the movements of emotions, uh, concepts, uh, phases in our lives. And then to see that it's not just these uh, particular moods that move through us or particular thoughts, but there are energies that move through us. And one of the core energies that moves through us is creative energy, is sexual energy. And so the fourth precept is brahmacharya, the wise use of sexual energy. I would also add to that translation the vow to encounter all beings with respect and dignity. The vow to use sexual energy in a way that is wise is taking a vow to respect all creatures, to give dignity to all creatures, including this creature. So that's what we're going to explore in the video today. So to begin with, the, the, the zone that we're in now in the precepts, we, we've covered the three levels of each precept, meaning the literal level of the precept, the compassionate level of the precept, and the koan level of the precept. It's also important to remember that the precepts apply in body, speech, and mind, internally and externally. So if we think about the wise use of sexual energy, we're talking about the wise use of sexual energy in our own bodies, the wise use of sexual energy with other bodies, the wise use of sexual energy in speech. 
So how do we use sexual energy in how we speak? Flirtation is a good example. Uh, manipulation using sexual energy is a good example. Or not being able to speak about sexual energy. And the danger of not speaking up or not acknowledging sexual energy internally and externally. I, I've always thought that when people translate brahmacharya as celibacy, that that teaching is really important for monks. But for householders, although celibacy can be a really profound practice, there are all kinds of ways that celibacy gets perverted or that sexual energy gets repressed in the name of the spiritual ideal of celibacy. And so I think speech is really important to, to be able to practice the wise use of sexual energy in our own bodies, the wise use of sexual energy without other bodies, the wise use of sexual energy in terms of speech internally means being able to listen and not repress the presence of sexual energy, but also not act it out. And this is, of course, true in communication with others. Sometimes uh, I think sexual energy uh, is so difficult to talk about and many people feel this way because sometimes we're with a partner and we want to communicate something about our sexual lives or they want to communicate about uh, their sexual lives and it can be a real risk uh, to communicate a fantasy, to communicate a way you would like somebody to kiss, to communicate the way you don't like the way somebody hugs. I mean these are all subtle ways where we're tuning into each other's energy and trying to do so from a place that's honest, a place that's nonviolent, and a place that's not based on hoarding or greed or self-centeredness. So body, speech, and the last is mind. To be able to have a free flow of sexual energy in the mind, internally and externally. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But simply, this means allowing for sexual energy to move through the mind without pushing it away and also without ramping it up. Being able to experience the kind of impersonal nature of sexual energy, something that is uh, really a, a kind of movement that most of us really get stuck in. I'm going to say a little bit more about that. So just to back up a little bit, the, the, the intention with the precepts is to make each breath a precept. When you inhale and when you exhale, to fully arrive in your life. And to also recognize that every time we inhale and exhale, we're also taking action. And we want those actions to be beneficial for ourselves, but also beneficial for other beings. And we get caught, uh, and the precepts show us where we get caught. Um, the other side of grasping, of, of craving, uh, which we talked about a lot in the realm of non-stealing, is aversion. And I think this really comes up with sexual energy. Either there's sexual energy arriving and we crave it and we want to follow it and we want to act on it. 
or there's sexual energy arising and we have aversion to it. We don't want it. It's not spiritual, it's not appropriate, it's not pure. Uh, and these two sides of the spectrum are dangerous. And that's why I was saying earlier that when sexual energy as a precept is translated just as celibacy, then it can give rise to repression. And I think if there's anybody who is saying that they have sexual energy under control and managed and it's not showing up in their practice and in their life, they're a walking time bomb. Sexual energy, like any energy, whether it's anger or jealousy, is a kind of uh, movement that comes through us in different conditions. It arises in different ways. And we need to be able to open to it and also be wise with it. And so this is the heart of, of uh, the wise use of sexual energy. And, and in a way, you know that the fundamental ignorance in yoga psychology and in Buddhist psychology, which we call avidya, which means not seeing things as they are, is really about not being able to open to the movement of energy in our experience or thinking that that energy that moves through us is ours. See, this is an inter interesting thing about sexual energy is often when sexual energy arises, we think it's our own. Oh, this is my sexual energy. As opposed to recognizing how sexual energy emerges in conditions like everything else. It's as personal and as impersonal as anything else. And when we sit, we're, 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 what we're saying in our practice is that I vow to see, to, to open to whatever is arising. And if sexual energy is arising, then we watch for aversion or we watch for compulsiveness. I want, I don't want. And so this fundamental ignorance, this fundamental way we don't want to look at what's going on is simply by making it separate from us. Um, in our practice, we're becoming one with sexual energy. We're not trying to act it out and we're not trying to push it away. And we, we live in a culture where sex appears everywhere. And yet somehow it's still something that is so hard to talk about. Maybe we value friendships or relationships where sexual energy is something we can talk about. But those are very rare. So maybe in a way sexual energy is the kind of uh, shadow uh, in our culture in terms of its wise use. So avidya, or, or not seeing sexual energy as it is, is when we take the process of the movement of sexual energy and we turn it into a thing, uh, a noun, a, a reifiable object. And when you get reification, you get deification. And then you turn sexual energy into an object, or you turn someone else into an object. And when something's an object, it's just too big to contend with. So, so really, uh, the problem we get into is when sexual energy arises, we think we need to do something with it or not do something with it. I better act on it or I better get rid of it. And then we don't actually get to see what it is. 
So when sexual energy arises, it's a feeling, it's a sensation, uh, there are fantasies, there are stories, and layers and layers of deeper stories. But ultimately, sexual energy is just energy. It's impersonal uh, and it's creative. In fact, the word brahmacharya means to live like Brahma. Brahma is the creator god uh, in uh, Indian mythology. And whenever I hear the word Brahma, I always think of a two-stroke motorcycle engine that goes brum, brum, brum. So Brahma means acceleration, to have pistons firing, to build cities, to make art, to make architecture. So taking creative energy and, and working with it, uh, biologically, creative energy and sexual energy are the same thing. Um, so I think we need to keep in mind that whenever uh, two things come together, whether it's uh, sexual energy in your fantasy life or your experience of sexual energy in another person, uh, a third thing is always created. I don't mean just literally that when you make love with somebody else, there's the possibility of a life. But of course, uh, that's also an ethical concern. When two people come together and, and have sexual intercourse, you're, you're building something new. But even in queer sex, when two people come together, they're building something new. I think to think two people can come together simply and nothing new is created out of that is missing the, the teaching of karma. Um, Luce Irigari, a wonderful French uh, feminist and philosopher, has a beautiful line where she says that a, a family begins with two. We usually think a family begins with three. But whenever you have two, the coming together of two creates a third. And the third is the effect of your actions. So with sexual energy, we're trying to be aware of our actions around sexual energy, our intentions, and how this reverberates, whether it's making a family, making baby Buddhas, or also just uh, coming together to make the life of a new relationship, however long or short that might be. Um, there's a wonderful story where there's an old lady in her home and she's working in her kitchen and she's cleaning up after breakfast. She's putting dishes in the sink. She's taking things off the table. And suddenly she rushes over to her master who is in the room named Hakwin, who is a famous Zen master. And she says, the Buddha has filled my whole body. The whole universe radiates. Isn't this marvelous? Uh, awake, awake, she says. She has this genuine moment of, of awakening. And Ha Quinn, who is a really uh, intense guy, uh, says to her, nonsense, nonsense, are you fully awake? Awake, she says, I'm fully awake. And Ha Quinn says, does the awakenness shine up your asshole? And the woman shoves Ha Quinn over and they both fall on the floor. And, and Hakuin uh, looks at her and she looks at him and she says, what do you know about enlightenment? And they both fall over laughing. And I can picture Hakuin and this old lady on the floor laughing together about her asshole. And I, I've always loved this koan, this story, 
because this this there's this teaching in uh, traditional India where if you are a woman and also for a father but primarily for women and you're tending the household that's not spiritual practice you have to wait until there's an empty nest and then once you're free of your domestic responsibilities then you can wake up and be enlightened and what I love about this story is she has this experience of, of opening beyond who she thinks she is while she's cleaning up after breakfast. It's a kind of an awakening in the domestic sphere. And Hakuin, a famous Zen master who, who's really also a troublemaker, happens to be there. And she turns to him and says, the, the Buddha has filled my body. The whole universe radiates. This is marvelous. Awake, awake. And Hakuin retorts, nonsense. Does it shine up your asshole? And she shoves them over and they fall over laughing. And this is good because I think sometimes we think that, you know, we're spiritual in one area and in another there's a kind of shadow or a dark side that we're not including in our practice. And the asshole is the metaphor for that part of us we don't look at. I mean, how, how many of us have studied our asshole as much as we've studied our hand? or our elbow, or the, our face in a mirror. And so this, this teaching is trying to remind us that when we wake up, every part has to be included. Everything has to be included. And I also love how this brings a kind of joy that, that everything's included. Hakuin, if I, if I had an experience thinking that I was enlightened, I would go to Hakuin and, and see what he said. He, he's this person in um, uh, Chinese and Japanese history. He, he's the person who tests to see if your enlightenment is really deep and wide enough. And he just happens to be in her kitchen and asks her this question, is it shining up your asshole? Does practice include your asshole? Does practice include the parts of yourself you can't look at? Does practice include the parts of your community you don't give attention to? Does practice allow you to articulate what moves through you with courage, with honesty, without, as we've been exploring, compartmentalization? Um, the, 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 this, this instance of this woman waking up is also our own story. Can we use sexual energy to wake up? For some of us, the path of celibacy is really important. To be able to take time from acting on our sexual energy and just being able to watch it arise and watch it pass away. To see the fantasies that come with it, to see the pictures in our mind that come with it, to see the reactivity that shows up. Sometimes it's compulsive, sometimes it's aversive, and really to be honest in seeing that. And I highly recommend celibacy as a practice for people in certain phases of their life, to be able to start to work with that space between the arising of sexual energy and the sense of needing to do something with it either needing to get rid of it or needing to act it out. And how we can open up to that space between the arising of sexual energy and needing to do something with it. And then to watch sexual energy arise and see how it's creative energy, 
it's impermanent, and it doesn't belong to you. Uh, nothing belongs to I, me, or mine. Whether that is uh, a, a pen, whether that's a, uh, this roll of tape, whether it's this clock, um, these don't belong to me. And yet, when certain feelings arise in us, like sexual energy, they really feel like they're, they're ours. And I think as you start to open up to how what moves through us is impermanent and impersonal, then it also gives us some confidence in the speech realm, in the communication realm. Is it possible for us to really be honest about how sexual energy moves through us and to express it? Um, to express it to ourselves and also if you have a lover to express it to a lover. Or if you have a teacher to talk with your teacher about how you're working with sexual energy. Especially because if we don't, if we don't let it move through us even with language, then we start the repression. And traditionally in yoga and in Buddhism, it's said that our practice works at three different levels. The first is the unconscious level, where practice is taking place in a realm that you can't see and that you can't know. So in a way, just sitting and being able to open to movements of energy without knowing what they are or where they're going um, really gets practice going at a kind of pre-cognitive level. Um, being aware of the kind of energy that moves through us uh, and how it molds us. And the second level is practice and being aware of what's arising in direct awareness. So the first level is how there's a level of practice that's changing us, even genetically, at a pre-verbal, unconscious level. Then there's the level of direct awareness, where our practice is showing up in awareness, sexual energy is arising, and we're working with it consciously. And then there's a, a third level, which uh, in one early Buddhist text call, is called the surging stage, which is when we're just carried away. An emotion arises and it moves from kind of uh, dormancy to surging without any awareness. And, and I think sexual energy can fall into this, this realm where I would say we're just reactive where sexual energy arises, like anger arises, or envy arises, and the first thing we do with it is we have attachment or aversion to it. It's pleasurable, we want to repeat it, or we have aversion, oh no, this is really bad, this is dirty, or I just expressed something about my sexual energy and now I feel ashamed. Um, whether it happens in body, speech, or mind, when we're caught in sexual energy, the first thing we have to see is that it's not ours. To be able to really see sexual energy just as sexual energy, patterns of sensation, memory, images, feelings, 
that don't belong to me or mine. And then we can feel sexual energy without trying to get rid of it and without needing to act it out. And then you can see how avidya operates, how not seeing operates. And uh, there's a wonderful, we're on this theme of, of the rear end right now for some reason, but there's this wonderful line by Trungpa Rinpoche where he says, Dharma practice is a laxative, not a sedative. It's a laxative, not a sedative. It opens us up through what moves us and it sees whether uh, we can allow energy to flow there or not. So as we start to practice, we start to relax. We start to relax. And maybe if there are certain areas of our sexual life that we're not relaxed around, mindfulness of sexual energy starts to show us uh, how we can let that energy flow. And um, what I like about this is that it's a reminder when you're awake that you're awake to everything, that we can be awake to everything. You can be mindful of sexual energy so you don't act it out. You can be mindful of sexual energy where you can see how it can be compulsive or you're mindful of sexual energy where you can see where it's repressed. And, and this takes some honesty uh, and, and some nonviolence. You know, one thing that has happened so much in yoga and Buddhist communities, and you know, we see this of course in Christian communities, is that um, certain layers of sexual energy are considered unacceptable. You know, the, 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 the let, let me back up. The, the problem with sexual energy is not the sexual energy. Sexual energy is impersonal, it's natural, it's creative energy. The problem is the clinging and the craving. The problem is compartmentalizing. The problem is reactivity. The problem is contraction or aversion. But one thing that we've seen happen in so many spiritual communities is that because sexual energy is not talked about, then it goes underground. Uh, it gets repressed. And I've seen this, you know, and we saw it in the 80s a lot, where an Asian teacher would come teach a community uh, all alone, and uh, everyone was practicing celibacy, and the focus of practice turned towards what the students were wanting at the time, which was mostly meditation practice, and not to ethics, and not to a discussion about ethics. So as practice started showing up on American, North American soil, most people just wanted to get concentrated and realize nirvana. And then the community wasn't growing at an ethical way, and at a level of communication. And over time what happened was we started to see scandals and the sexual energy that we thought could go underground uh, actually came back in really dangerous and actually quite hurtful and, and, and ways that in, involved a lot of lying and deceit. Um, now I think we see less of that because 
uh, we're teaching ethics. There's more uh, um, feedback in communities. And most communities are run now by boards. And I think this is a really great thing because the board keeps an eye on what the teacher is doing. And I think this model of having a board has really helped communities who have had problems with money or have had problems with sexual energy. So as I said earlier, uh, when there are people in spiritual practice who are not talking about sexual energy, they're time bombs. Sexual energy is a natural energy that moves through us. And the, the, the key in practice is to be able to hold it. To be able to hold space for sexual energy with, the, with relaxation, with ease, and not to contract around it. There's nothing wrong with sexual desire. It's a fantastic thing. And if people have sexual desire that they've never spent time with, and they try and push it away, it starts growing roots in other places, and it'll show up somehow. I, I had a young student, uh, I guess this was probably six years ago, um, he was graduating high school and he uh, wanted to experiment with uh, uh, young men uh, his age. And um, for him, the wise use of sexual energy meant he needed to kind of follow this, this uh, intuition he had that maybe he was gay. And, and I really encouraged him uh, to, to kind of open up about that and really to follow that. And he was so shocked because he said, oh, well, you know, you're, you're a teacher and I was expecting you to kind of come down hard and say, no, uh, you know, the, the practice is not acting on sexual energy. And it took quite a while for him to realize that sexual energy was something he could trust, uh, was something that inspired him was something that connected him with others, was an energy that connected him with himself, and actually was part of an identity that at that age was really important to construct, not so much to deconstruct. And so um, his practice with sexual energy was uh, to really allow enough space in his imagination for him to entertain that it was okay to be attracted to someone of his own sex. And, and it was really uh, a privilege working with him at that time. Uh, a young person who's interested in the practice, but also is not shy about including uh, sexual energy. And I think right now we really need to have more broad and also deep conversations in our communities about sexual energy, about sexuality and spirituality and, and how they work together. Um, Carl Jung had this wonderful way of talking about sexual energy. He, I, I won't go through the whole thing, but, but one part he says is that, you know, if you don't make something conscious, it's like falling into a hole backwards. I've always loved this. It's like if you're not being aware of what's moving through you because there's something you don't want to be aware of, 
then this is like falling in a hole backwards. Something from the outside will show up uh, to bring this back into consciousness. And the job of the yogi is to practice yoga, to practice intimacy. This means being intimate with sexual energy, not to push it away and not to act it out. There's a wonderful uh, uh, Japanese poet named Ikkyu, and there's a tradition in Japan, especially you find uh, in a certain lineage of Zen practice, where people would write a death poem. It was usually on the day that you die. So Ikkyu's death poem, written on the day he died, uh, goes like this. On this day of this month, I give back my body, which I have used all these years. On this day of this month, I give back my body, which I have used all these years. I, I read that this morning and I, I, it really struck me that this could be related also to brahmacharya. On this day of this month, I give back my body, which I've used all these years. You know, sexual energy is, is, is tricky to work with because we take it so personally and we all have so many stories around it, many of which have not been examined carefully. And also many of us have been hurt in the realm of sexuality. And at a deep level, sexuality is not ours. It's like everything else. It's part of the natural world. It's an incoming wind and an outgoing wind, just like the breath, just like images, just like thoughts and feelings. Can we treat sexual energy as sacred, but without clinging to it? without attachment. Um, and that way, sexual energy can move through us like everything else. And in Ikkyu's poem, I give back my body, which I've used all these years. There's a sense that th this body uh, is also part of the natural world. And yet we take what moves through it so personally, you know, it's so, we can be so tight around it. Um, and I think the wise use of sexual energy, when we really start investigating this, uh, allows us to see how sexual energy moves through the body, how sexual energy moves through the mind, and how sexual energy moves through speech. Um, sometimes we're very unskillful with sexual energy, uh, primarily in one of those categories speech, for example, sometimes there's people who have discovered their sexuality um, and they kind of wear it in their speech. They paint everything sexually. Maybe the only way they know how to communicate with people is through their sexuality or through flirting. And then there are others who have repressed sexuality so much that they can't, can't speak about it. They don't even know how to talk to themselves about it. And this is the other side of the spectrum. I remember years ago reading an interview with a musician named Tori Amos. Uh, 
whose music I had only been somewhat familiar with. And she was talking about how one night she was in a hotel room and she was watching a video of herself performing on the television. And if you've ever seen her perform, she's a piano player and very sexual and is all over the piano and bright red lipstick. And she watched herself and she was stunned and she saw how sexual her performances were. And then she realized that she hadn't been doing this consciously, that there was this whole act of using sexual energy that seemed like she was conscious of in her performance, but she wasn't. And I found this a really moving story. And I found it very courageous that she could talk about this in this interview, how this musician who really wears sexuality really wasn't comfortable with her own. And that really the kind of outward projection of her sexuality was really hiding something much deeper, which is not actually being comfortable with her own sexuality. So it's really interesting how um, sexuality, when we look at it, really calls us to integrate body, speech, and mind. And this is a, a deep place of practice. And when we start going deeply through the precepts, we begin to realize that they leave no stone unturned. And that's why I liked the koan about the woman waking up, cleaning up after breakfast. And Hakuin asking, you know, does your awakening also go into your asshole? And her just laughing and falling on the floor. There's a woman, a story of a woman who was a prostitute who went to a monastery. And she said to the teacher, I really want to come here and practice. And the teacher said, you can practice but you can't practice here and she said well I have a son and I want to practice for myself and I want to practice for my son uh, but the monk said well you you can't practice here because you're a prostitute um, and you shouldn't stop being a prostitute right now because your son needs the money you need the work and maybe right now this is good for you and so stunned, she said, um, well, then how can I practice? And the monk said to her, go into your profession and practice. Uh, sex workers are also wounded healers. They are working with people who are wounded, people who are lonely, people who are anxious, and they are also doing work that is bodhisattva work, that is healing. This monk wouldn't let this prostitute into the monastery uh, for reasons we don't know but can probably imagine, uh, but had this insight to tell this prostitute to take all the teachings of the Buddha, to take all the teachings around being one with what's moving through us, to take the teachings of interdependence, to take the teachings of non-attachment, 
to take the teachings of serving others, to take the teaching of letting our woundedness heal others and bring them into her work as a prostitute. And I've always loved this, this story. It's a kind of startling story, you know. But I think at the same time, uh, the precept of the wise use of sexual energy is reminding us that sexual energy is healing energy. And for some people, the path is to begin to work with it as a natural energy in the universe and using it as a practice to wake up. And for other people who are in domestic relationships, who have a lover or lovers, to use sexual energy to do good, to heal themselves, to be creative, to be artful, to enjoy the sensuality of the body, your own body and other bodies, but without contraction, without craving. And whenever we get into relationships with anything, our, our patterns of greed, our patterns of possessiveness, our patterns of rapaciousness, all uh, uh, converge. And the attachment that we find in any sphere also shows up in sexual energy. You know, in early psychoanalysis, it was Freud's discovery that our deepest patterns show up in the realm of sexuality. And I think this is true for all of us. Our greatest fears, our deepest desires, our worries, our feelings of being abandoned, our feelings of not being good enough, our feeling of being let down, a sense that we might let down others, this all shows up in the sexual realm. And so the sexual realm is as good as place as any uh, to go to work and to start to heal where we've been wounded, where others are wounded, where we're acting out of self-centeredness, where we're not aware of our needs, Maybe where we are seeing that we're aware of what we want, but we can't be aware of what other people want. And so this mixing of two people's desire is actually a place where we can see where we're clinging and where we can let go. Or we can also see where we too easily let go and where we need to build some boundaries to take care of what we need because sexual energy isn't the loss of boundaries. Uh, it also might need boundaries for it to be healthy. And so these are some ideas around brahmacharya, uh, living like Brahma, which I think uh, need to be explored in much greater depth in our society because those of us taking this course right now are not monks. We're lay people, we're in domestic relationships, we live alone or we live with others and the flow of sexual energy is around. Um, and to see that sexual energy is just one energy amongst many that will flow and it needs to flow. Um, it's impermanent, it's impersonal and, uh, and it's healing.